0: Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Today, listeners, I have the pleasure of hosting Carol Hamilton, who is the principal consultant of Grace Social Sector Consulting. Carol helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Specifically, she helps organizations get creative, get focused, and get strategic. Carol works with teams and organizations to envision their future strategic direction. She takes a practical approach in her work and helps organizations think through kind of the key to achieving and creating their own future. Carol's got more than 25 years of experience, um, and she frequently trains on leadership, strategy, and innovation topics. Interestingly enough, Carol and I have been traveling in similar circles for years, so we both have a lot of professional nonprofit experience. We both have been doing consulting. Um, I think we've both been doing consulting, Carol, for about three or four years, me for about five or six years. We at different times, went through the board source certification for board or governance training. And I have this strong sense that Carol and I also have some very similar approaches. So before we welcome Carol on, let me also just share with you all a little bit about my mindset around nonprofit consulting. I do think that Carol and I have very similar approaches. I think we probably have very similar life philosophies. And obviously, we've got uh, some similar backgrounds. But I don't view Carol as competition. And I kind of want to share why. I, I have, an, generally speaking, I have an abundance mindset. And so in my own home state of Georgia, I think there's like 70,000 501c3 nonprofits. And like Carol, I've got a multi-state consulting practice. So at any given point in time, I might be in LA and Phoenix and then New York and then Fort Lauderdale and then back in Atlanta. And I think that's similar for Carol as well. At any given point in time, she might be in Maryland and then Philly and then New York and then Seattle and doing other types of consulting in other cities. But so I have an abundance mindset. There are lots of nonprofits that need the type of consulting that Carol offers and that I offer. So I don't view her at all as competition when she comes on. I really welcome her coming on and her perspective. And gosh, I hope that you get as much out of today's conversation as I know Carol and I will get in terms of joy. Because whenever two consultants get together, it's typically a pretty joyful conversation. Hey, Carol welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you for that very generous uh, introduction. And I appreciate um, your description of your mindset. I think it's one that really serves all of us. Uh, we try to work with our clients. I'm not a fundraising consultant, but we try to work with our clients and in terms of having that abundance mindset as well. So I really appreciate that approach. Well, it kind of like you,
0: I, I also don't really do a lot of fundraising work every now and then I will have a former client who will ask if I can do something very specific around fundraising planning Um and because I know that client really well it just makes sense for me to do it but I don't actively go out and look for fundraising work because it's not something that I, I really specialize in but I think whether you are a fundraiser an executive director or a consultant for me, like, but this abundancy mindset is just so really important. So if as an executive director, you think, Oh my gosh, if my partner, um, nonprofit gets a grant of $50,000, that means we didn't get that $50,000 grant. Uh, to me, that's just, that's just the wrong mindset. Or, Oh my gosh, if this amazing team member goes over to another organization, We lost this great team member. You know, there are lots of great people that can come and work in our nonprofit. So from my perspective, it's not a it's not this scarcity. It really is. We live in a world where there's so much opportunity for you and I as consultants, but also for the nonprofits we work with.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So um, I kind of thought it might be nice for us to just kind of acknowledge that you and I both have some Philadelphia connections. It's my adopted hometown. And I think you went to college there.
1: I did, I went to college right outside of Philadelphia and um, I've also had the opportunity uh, to do some work um, recently in Philadelphia, working with a network of conservation organizations that are all across the Delaware River um, watershed, but a lot of meetings in Philadelphia. And for me, it's been amazing to see the transformation of that city from when I was there back in the day, and and to now, it's just uh, booming and bustling and it's got a so much different energy than it than it did probably, you know, I won't name the number of years ago uh, that I was there. It, it, admittedly,
0: I, I do know there was a period in t- of time when even residents would call it Philadelphia. And now when you're in Philly, and I felt this way when I was there, I was there in the knots. Now when you're in Philly, oh my gosh, it's just, it's such a beautiful city full of culture, and vibrant sidewalk, you know, walking and and you know type of life. It's just incredible.
1: Yeah, it's really shows you what bringing the people back to the to the built infrastructure can really do. Because when I when I was there, I, I my last year of college, I did a um, a thesis, and I was going down to the big public library that's that's close to where people you know run up the steps to do the rocky. Rocky run, and uh, I would go there on the weekends, and it was just a ghost town and now you know there are people everywhere they 've done so much to build out their their biking and walking infrastructure. it really brings the life uh, back to the city, which is really wonderful to see
0: and and listeners, just so you know, um, Philadelphia Tourism and Convention Bureau has not sponsored this episode of the <laughs> podcast you know we we don 't commoditize it, but one final plug for Philly before we actually talk about. It. Uh, Carol, what is it we're going to talk about today? One final plug for Philly. If you love art, Philadelphia has more public art per square mile than any other city in the United States, more than New York, more than L.A., more than Chicago. If you love public art, oh my gosh, you could literally go to Philly and just wander around the streets and see world-class art.
1: Absolutely. And some wonderful specialty museums as well. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> so now I am going to have to approach Jeff Guarasino over at the Convention and Visitors Bureau and be like, hey, Jeff, <laughs> come on, you got to sponsor this podcast. Look at everything we've done for you here. Um, but so I'd want us to dive a little bit into the work that you mentioned you're doing with a group of conservation executive directors in the Philly region. Uh, can you just share a little bit about that? And I, and I think I read a blog post on your website about that.
1: Yeah, so I'm doing this um, in partnership with an organization called the Institute for Conservation Leadership, and they're the, really the, the leader in, in bringing a human uh, perspective to this collaboration. So it's a collaboration of um, organizations that spans four states. Uh, the whole Delaware River watershed, which um, I've certainly learned a lot about, it includes Pennsylvania, um, Delaware, New Jersey, and New York. Uh, so actually New York city, uh, depends on the Delaware river for a large portion of its, of its water. Um, I'm certainly not a conservation person. I, you know, we're the folks in there trying to help people, uh, do collaboration effectively and, um, think about how they work with others, how they work beyond their own organization. So, you know, you talked about that, uh, uh that abundance mindset, and I think all the work that. Um, the nonprofit sector is moving towards in terms of more um, organizations coming together to try to, you know, work in a synergistic way to, to create a, a greater impact. Um, it's also hard work, right? I mean, a lot of funders want that to happen. Everyone sees the, the, the natural logic of collabor- putting, coming together and, and pooling your resources, not only pooling your resources, but aligning around um, shared goals Uh, But it takes work, and it takes time, and it takes time to build the trust between the different organizations, to learn each other. And just like on a team, who brings what strengths, who brings what connections, uh, and all of that, It, it, it just takes time to weave that together and have it be an effective collaborative.
0: Carol, in my own experience, both as an executive director, but also as a consultant that works with a lot of executive directors Probably one of the loneliest positions in the nonprofit sector is is ed. And so in addition to this group of conservation EDs coming together to find synergy, I bet there's a lot of peer support that's going on in the group as well.
1: Yeah, so we actually built in um, and I, I partnered with a colleague um, to to deliver a, a, a program embedded within this collaborative of uh, uh, actually deli- you know specifically supporting, a cohort of executive directors. And we just wrap that up. And <clears throat> definitely um, one of the first things that folks said was, you know, the, the the sense of loneliness and isolation in being in that leadership role. Many of them were newer executive directors. And so they were used to being part of the team, not leading the team. And so making that shift in mindset of, Okay, I'm not. I'm not just part of the gang anymore. I've, I've got to set direction. I've got to work with the board in a different way. Um, so building that community so that they could have honest conversations with each other about the challenges that they were facing. Uh, we specifically built it in through a methodology called peer coaching, where we gave them some tools to be able to have some really productive conversations. Um, that where they where they were able to uh, help each other think through. Challenges that they were having, um, not necessarily giving each other advice. Actually, we tried to steer them away from that, but more, um, you know, what are the questions that you might ask yourself in this situation, or you know, help that ha- ask that person questions that that really prompt their thinking and help them come to a new conclusion, a new uh, way of thinking, uh, seeing a particular situation that then they might be able to say, okay, and now my next step is X.
0: And I will say, whether you're talking pure coaching or engaging someone like yourself or myself as a coach, I think that's the tough part of coaching is holding back and and not saying, okay, you should do A, B, and then jump over to F and G, but really instead asking the right questions and helping people find what's right for them and their own truth and not, oh, well, here's exactly how I would pursue the issue that you're currently struggling with.
1: Absolutely, and uh, we also... Um... Not only was it useful in that moment, working with that person and working with their peers and building that network and building that trust, but also um, letting them know that doing this in this context, we're helping you practice a different way of being a boss.
0: Yes. It's funny. I I was already nodding yes, because I'm like, oh yeah, I totally see where this is going. Once you've got that skill, you take it into your own organization. Sorry.
1: Sorry. Well, and being explicit about that, that 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 we're offering this up that this isn't just what you use here at this program but rather than always being this fix it person and always being the solve the problem person and 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 naturally people end up in leadership roles because they're good at that. And so to unlearn always being the solution can and I found this when I was, you know, was in a in a management role for the first time, um, you know, I had to train myself to not always be trying to solve the person's problem um, and help them learn how to solve it themselves. Um, and so really ha- doing that, we were we were explicitly trying to say, and this is something that you can bring back and work with your staff so that you're really building their skills rather than building their dependence on you in terms of, and then building your sense of overwhelm of, oh my God, I've got to solve everyone's problem. Well, get yourself out of that get yourself into more of a coaching and, and coaching in a very specific way. Cause a lot of people think about coaching as kind of that side of the, you know, side of the team of, you know, X position go here and Y position go there a little more directive. And this really being around um, helping people uh, asking those probing questions to help them further their thinking.
0: And I love the fact that you're encouraging people to take that, coaching approach back into their organizations, I do, and all the listeners know this, I do a lot of interim executive director engagements. And so almost every year that I have my consulting practice, I've done at least one interim ED engagement. And whenever I step into one, and I think, I think this is common for a lot of reasons, even if it's not the organization's culture, uh, at a time of transition, team members, staff members are really nervous. And so they want some certainty. And so especially early on, uh, and, and this is also true I think for new executive directors, but early on as the interim, people will come to me and say, Dolph, I have this problem, what do you want me to do? As opposed to, Dolph, I have this problem, I, I'm thinking about these two or three different possible solutions. And if if as the interim, I'm like, oh well, I want you to do A and then C and then F. I set myself up whereas you just said I'm always this fixer. But if instead I say, "Well, what are some of the solutions you're thinking about?" and then I ask, you know, some questions, things like, "Well, what are some of the possible drawbacks or unintended consequences if you do your option A versus your option B? Okay, what are some of the possible benefits of option A versus option B? You know, which one's going to cost more, which one's going to take more of your time, but really you know, help help them probe their own answer, and then hopefully come up, have them really take that agency and make that decision and come up with, oh, yeah, I need to do A or I need to do a cross between A and C or whatever it might be. But so I, I love that you're helping these executive directors through become, by becoming peer coaches to be better bosses in their own organization.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, Sometimes any, any tool can be overused. So there are going to be times in which the, the executive director just needs to set direction and, and make a decision and be care about that. And, you know, it's all about balance, right? It's all about being able to kind of <laughs> be adaptive and, 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 and show up in a way that's going to be useful in that moment.
0: Uh, oh, absolutely. And, you know, to continue the coaching metaphor, if you're a swim coach and you're coaching someone who is in the middle of the pool drowning, yeah. The first thing you have to do is go and pull them out of the pool. Right. <laughs> so, you know, so so standing at the edge and offering them some advice while they're while they're breathing in water is probably not a really good coaching technique.
1: Yeah, so I'm curious. Um, I, I love I love that you've done those interim roles, and I, I think not enough organizations give themselves the kind of the grace of, of allowing that transition to happen and allowing someone to come in, in an interim role, um, so that they have time to kind of process a transition rather than leaping from, you know, one executive director and one way of doing things into a, you know, the, the the next one, okay, you're up next. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about how, like how that experience has been and, and, uh, you know what you've seen is the benefits for the organizations that have been willing to to have you come in in that capacity. So
0: I, I do have to admit I, I am an evangelist for interims and not, and, <laughs> and 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 not just because I do them and um all. Unless and you, I
1: them, and I'm an evangelist
0: too. Yeah, you know, and I was gonna say, like, an, un, unless the listener is a first time listener, um, all the other listeners know I am not a religious person really at all. Um, but you know, if you think about evangelist, I am an evangelist for interims, and and um, yeah, I've got some self interest because I do interims. But I, I really believe that. Bringing on an interim helps ensure a much smoother transition. And I think this is true whether you're a $150,000 organization with a very small budget to hire an interim or a $10 million organization with a larger budget to hire an interim. And, and kind of like when you're looking for your chief executive, the amount that you are able to spend will certainly impact who you might get as your, as your next chief executive. There's value regardless of of what your budget is. And I also think, um you know my 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 the two reasons I tell well, there's probably twenty, but the two big reasons I tell organizations they should think about an interim. The very first one is if you have an interim, you can hold out for the right candidate because the board and the staff experience pain when there's no one in that seat. And so, as an organization, you are much more likely, to to if you do not have an interim to fill the position with someone who's not an ideal fit. And frankly, the second reason is no matter how great the prior executive director is and I you know, and I was a permanent ED for 12 years. As a permanent ED, I had blind spots and the and the dysfunctional thing and this is just baked into the nonprofit DNA. The dysfunctional thing is that the organization morphs around my blind spots as an executive as a permanent executive director So if you have someone who's been there five or ten or 20 years the organization has morphed around that and and so this is an opportunity to bring in someone with specific expertise in the area that the organization needs to strengthen in
1: absolutely and I think it gives it gives the organization a little breathing room and I think you make a great point around, not feeling kind of taking off that pressure of the pressure to hire right away. Cause um, we're uh, looking at some work of, a, of another consultant. She was looking at what, um, what do, you know, organizations that really do, you know, from an assessment point of view have a very healthy culture. And one of the things that they do is, 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 is to be very intentional about hiring. And so it's, it's very much kind of a slow hiring process. You might have a, faster offboarding process because you, you you acknowledge quicker that there isn't a fit but I think um, you know giving the organization some space to to really first be clear about what they need next and then to go find that person I think it, it's it's a great benefit and um, you know just for organ- organizations that are smart enough to do that, uh, they set themselves up for success. Right.
0: And I I love, Carol, the very gentle way that you just said, hire slow, fire fast. That was such a gentle, gentle. I love, I loved your approach and how you said that. That's awesome. Now, I know that you're also doing a lot of board retreat work and what has been your experience in terms of doing board retreats? What's working really well? What, you know, what, what are some of the issues that boards sometimes experience that trip up their board retreat?
1: Well, I think uh, you know, some of the basics of has the organization uh, – most organizations do a pretty good job or they focus in on orienting their board members um, into the work of the organization – but have they spent the time really uh, educating their board members um, about what is the role of a board? What are the responsibilities of a board? Um, how do they contribute in that way? And what's different than what the staff do? And really being clear about those roles and responsibilities. So, um, you know, with uh, the, some of the retreats that I've done, we've either been looking for, you know, to, to, to build, um, you know, to to have the organization build a strategic direction, either kind of shorter term, 12 to 18 months or longer term, three to five years. Uh, but then also, you know, bringing board and staff together to have a conversation about, uh, I, I worked with one board, they had some really good practices around um, doing an annual assessment. And so they had a great groundwork in terms of um, they were regularly checking in on how they're doing, and they saw some of their indicators start to to drop. And they weren't in the you know the yellow or red zone yet. They were still good, but it was less than than optimal. And so they said, well, maybe it's at some time we need to kind of pay attention to this and get it before it really you know becomes a problem. And so it it was facilitating a conversation between board and staff, between what are the expectations, what's working between each group. What does each bring? group bring to the to the mission of the organization? And really what came up was each, organi- each side was a little bit afraid to have the conversation about, you know, what are the expectations? Um, and so that opened up the, uh, the possibility to have that conversation. And frankly, it, 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 uh, the result was they found out that they were both worried about the same thing. And so they then could come together to come up with a solution that was going to work uh, for both sides of the party. And it was around, you know, what's the level of decision-making that we want to have the board focused on and what needs to just be at the staff level. Um, and part of that was a, a new executive director had a different style, wanted a more participatory style. The previous executive director had been much more of a take charge, let's just do it. And so adjusting to all those different things. Um, but the, the, the fun part was actually when it was kind of the reveal of, oh, you're actually both worried about the same thing.
0: Right. A- absolutely. I Part of what I love about what you just said, and I'm in full alignment with you on this, is that the board retreat is this amazing time when the board can step out of its, okay, here's what we do at every meeting. We approve the minutes. We review the financials. Oh wait, this is the third quarter, we gotta do the budget. Oh what this is the second quarter, we gotta review the nine ninety. Uh, you know, this is the E D, uh the executive director review, it's the fifth fourth quarter. There is no fifth quarter, Dolph. You know, this is the fourth quarter, um, you know, it's time for the E D review. But you know, like there's some things that are just kind of business as usual, either they happen every every meeting or they happen regularly every year and that board retreat even if it's only once a year is a time for the board to step out of that and say what two or three things do we really want to focus on and have deeper conversations not not interrupted by things like all right we need to review the financials we're not interrupted by we need to um uh, vote on the executive director's review and compensation
1: absolutely and i think um you know it's really helpful when organizations have a regular practice around that. And I think um, I'm seeing more and more executive directors be and working with their board chairs to be um, more mindful about how they structure the regular board agenda to ensure that, um, you know, that, that there is time carved out. Maybe it's even labeled like this is our strategic issue that we're going to discuss We're not going to we're not looking to make decisions right now. We're just having a conversation to open things up, uh, think about things differently and to have that as a regular piece of an agenda or um, a regular piece around education where, you know, we're going to we're going to dive into a topic. Maybe it's an issue oriented related to the work of the organization. Maybe it's, um, you know, working on a specific aspect of being a board. Uh, so that can show up in different ways, but um, kind of not having that retreat just be a one-off, but really building it into the regular practice of the organization as well.
0: I'm so glad you said that. There's one organization I've been doing their annual board retreat probably since my first year of being a consultant. So about five years, maybe. Yeah, I think I've, I think I've done it about five years, done their board retreat. And for the last couple of years, they are now at a point where at every board meeting, they have what they call, they, they have their topic meeting. Um, and so, you know, and so these are, these are literally, they take half of their time, half of the time that the board meets, and they really explore a topic inside the meeting. And I'll share with you, once they started doing that, their board retreats are so much deeper and so mm-hmm. much better because they're already being strategic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, can I share with you the one radical thing I do? Um, <laughs> uh, in, 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 my, in my board retreat contracts, I actually put this in my agreement in the board retreat. Um and and it's kind of radical and uh, and I'd love to get your your take because you might be like Dolph that's just stupid so I'd, and I'm you know I I'm fine being challenged so I'm fine with you being like Dolph that's just stupid but let me share with you the one radical thing that I do in every board retreat agreement consulting agreement I have a clause in there that says the board agrees to not hold a meeting at any point during the day of the retreat.
1: Mm, I think that's a, that's a, that's really smart. Uh, Cause it's even though it is good to have those times during regular meetings to, to think differently, you really need to create some boundaries around the retreat and how this is a different experience so that we can show up differently and, 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 you know, go deeper, get to know each other better, build that trust, do all those things that, that will serve the organization for the, the coming year.
0: And, and I'll also share with you, Because my experience, and I've learned everything the hard way, and I learned this in my first couple of years of consulting. In my experience, when the board wants to have a retreat, it's because something is now on fire, and they've made this sudden decision they need to talk about this fire. And what happens then, first of all, number one, the meeting never takes the 15 or 30 minutes they think it's going to take. It always takes an hour or 90 minutes, and now we have less time for the important work of the retreat. Second it changes the entire tone of the retreat. So whether you start the day or at lunchtime, you decide to talk about this issue that's on fire, suddenly that's what everybody's thinking about. And no matter how much you're trying to focus on things that are a high tactical level or a or a or a lower strategic level. And when I say lower, you know, from my I, I typically, you know, um typically with board retreats, unless it's part of a larger strategic planning process, we're not doing a five-year plan um, just at the retreat alone. So you know, so essentially, you know, but but focusing on things that are, are higher-level issues. Now you're focused on the fire, and every high-level issue you're going to talk about deals with that fire. Um, I will also share with you, Carol, that every single organization signs the agreement; they don't have any question about it, and it o- and almost invariably, and it typically. Typically, it, it I'd say it's fifty percent of the time. About ten days before the retreat, I'll get an email from the board chair, and you're, and your people 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 don't know that uh, may not know that we can see each other. I see you're nodding your head. I got an email from the board chair, the executive director, Dolph. Can we meet for just thirty minutes during lunch? And because it's in the agreement, I'm able to say, well, it's in our agreement that you've agreed not to do this and the reason it's in the agreement is in my experience here all the negative things that will happen i'd like to suggest that you all at the retreat either schedule a time in the following week to meet to discuss this hot button issue or if it's really genuinely on fire that you talk about it in the next 10 days but no at the retreat if i'm the person facilitating your retreat we're not going to have a board meeting
1: yeah and that's a, i think there's so many reasons to do that and i think part of it is just you know how our brains work when we're in a state of threat and we're thinking about all the bad things that will happen, we're we're literally our our, our thinking narrows, our perspective narrows. We go more black and white. Uh, we can't be creative when we're in a state of threat, and that's biologically because you know that person that you talked about before. You know, you're not going to send advice to the person drowning in the in the pool. Uh, they gotta just focus on that one thing, and and so you really can't have those bigger picture and more expansive strategic conversations when you're in a state of threat.
0: I, I'll also share with you that sometimes that clause in the contract also provides some cover for the chief executive, because because sometimes it, the email will come from the chief executive and it's sheepish. It's, Dolph, we know that you don't think this is the best practice, but can we meet? And I, then I'm able to say, well, it's, it's in the agreement and, we're, and you're not going to have a meeting that day. I'm really sorry, but it gives cover for the chief executive. So they can go back to their board and say, well, we did agree that we weren't going to do this.
1: Well, and I think we, you know, consultants play that role a lot of um, being able to either name, you know, let's say you've done a lot of work before a, a, a meeting to talk to everybody and, and, and get perspectives, do interviews and focus groups and all of that. And, um, Uh, you know, as a consultant, you're mirroring back to the organization what everyone has told you, you're not making up something new. And at the same time, you may be able to name an issue or, you know, start an uncomfortable conversation that everyone's been willing to tell you individually. And then now you say, okay, let's have this as a Everyone's talking about it. They're not, they may be talking about it in the parking lot, not after, you know, after the meeting. Let's get it. Let's bring it into the meeting and into the retreat and have a conversation about it. And so, you know, you, you play that a little bit of an outsider role of being able to bring those things that are uncomfortable and so that people can work through them.
0: We uh, we both have spent time, as we've already said, in, in the Quaker city of Philadelphia. And Quakers refer to that as speaking truth to power. It's one, of the, th- it's one of the things I love about being a consultant you know, I, I, I have a limited engagement. I can, I can be completely and totally truthful with, with somebody's board. And if the board doesn't like it, they can just not hire me again. And I'm okay with that.
1: <laughs> and it, you know, it, it provides cover for the executive director who maybe knows that an issue needs to be addressed, but <clears throat> they don't, you know, it's just easy. You can take the hit for them.
0: Uh, uh, absolutely. Um I, I seem to recall, Carol, when we invited you on, we were actually going to talk about design thinking um, and how it's used to foster innovation in an organization. And I feel like a heel because we have not talked at all about design thinking. So we should probably spend just a few minutes talking about design thinking in part so that way um, uh, my colleague Isaac is not like Dolph. I've prepped you for this entire conversation on design thinking and, and what did you do? You went, not only did you go off course, but you threw me under the bus in the process. So,
1: <laughs> so we don't want to do that. So um, yeah, I love, uh, so for those who, who aren't familiar with the, the term, it's an approach that originally came out of Silicon Valley. It came out of actually product development um, and but it's morphed over the years and it's really an attitude of people have maybe heard the term agile, or maybe they've heard lean startup. They're all ways to help us um, move more quickly to, to action uh, and and not get stuck in a long extended planning process. So um, it's around, uh, you know, defining a, 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 Design challenge, if you will, what's the question that you realize, what's a strategic question that you need to ask? And then um, doing some research and then and then jumping into uh, brainstorming where you're looking for multiple different solutions. So oftentimes uh, you know, especially in our culture, we, we want to come to the one right answer as quickly as possible. And this is a really um, kind of going against that to say no, come up with a couple different possibilities. Don't even go to the point of piloting anything. Just do some, some, you know, what they call a prototype uh, for, you know, when I've done this with organizations, it's looked like, um, you know, we've, we've thought about, we've been thinking about, about a particular segment of the people that we serve. Um, how can we, what can we serve? How can we serve them differently? Really spending time to get, to talk with them and get an understanding of their unmet needs. And that's not by asking them the question, what do you need? Because rarely can people actually answer that in a useful way. They'll either tell you what you, they think you want to hear, or they'll say some aspirational thing that sounds great that they actually, when you offer it to them, won't, they won't follow through with.
0: So I, I just got to jump in real quick. Um, and this, this completely relates. But um, as we think about design thinking for nonprofits, and you say when you ask people what they need, it's all you're often not getting the answer you want and I'll share with you uh, when you ask nonprofits and I've done some work with associations that work with nonprofits when you ask nonprofits what they need the number one thing is always money but that's not that's not really that's not really the question you asked you didn't ask could you use more money yeah <laughs> and because there's all these other things that result in you having more money sorry i had to jump in there
1: right and um you know so yeah when i i often use a, there's a, you know, if you had a magic wand and there are three things that you could change with your organization, um, if they say time and more time and more money, um, I say, okay, I'm going to give you three more wishes because everybody wants more of those things. Uh, and, and, and so they're not, you know, uh, they're not as key. Well, they are key obviously, but they're not, they're, you know, what, what, what else can we think about? So it's really about looking at those different iterations of, of and different prototypes, and then uh, uh, testing with the people that you might do that with as soon as possible, uh, rather than you know spending a lot of time and resources um, to build out uh, something as formal as a pilot, which has t- been usually kind of the smallest size that that has been typical in the nonprofit sector. So this is much spending much less money and much less uh, resource um, in order to, and, but getting in front of people and, and getting feedback from them. So the way that we did this when I, when I, when I did this was to actually, um, draw a start storyboards. So we were kind of drawing almost like a graphic novel of like, what would the experience look like? What would the program offer? You know, X person would do this and then this, and then, you know, had a number of different things of those, uh, different concepts that we were testing and then testing them with people. Um, And in doing that, we, with only, you know, some flip chart paper, and yes, we did go to the expense of having an illustrator take our, what had been our little, you know, stick figures and made them look slightly better, uh, but really not investing a lot and then immediately being able to get some feedback to say what actually is going to be, you know, what's going to work for people um, and what are they excited about.
0: Very cool. And I'll share with you, at least from my perspective, as we as we think about design and as we try to and we essentially try to try to see whether or not a design works and we try to make it fail pretty quickly. um, That's a pretty appealing approach to a funder to say, you know, we don't need a lot. We you know, if if we can get four or five thousand or ten thousand, we can figure out whether or not this is going to succeed pretty quickly. And then we might come back and ask you for money for a pilot.
1: Right. And so, the, you know, the time invested is, is the, the, the resource that's invested is really staff and or volunteer time doing that research up front, doing the brainstorming um, and then testing things with folks uh, and, and not a lot more. Um, and we, you know, when we when we did this, we were able to see, you know, we had five or six different concepts, um, had people rank them so we could really see which were kind of going to the top. And then even within those, we ask them, well, what would make this work even better for you? So having them kind of be in the, in the design process with us. And for one, uh, you know, you, when, you're, when you're designing something, you can get really excited about a particular element, uh, you know, on your team. You're like, oh, this is going to be so great. We're going to build this leadership program and it's going to have this awesome online component, And then you get in front of people and they're like, well, I love the leadership program, but I'm, I know I'm never going to do, never going to access this online piece that you're talking about. Just that save the organization. You know, if we'd gone, if we'd gone forward in the traditional way, we would have built it all out before we even invited anyone in. And so doing it differently, we, just by those comments from folks one day, some, some, some feedback, were able to save the organization thousands of dollars of what would have been, you know, elaborate development
0: in uh, time. Absolutely, and it's interesting. One of the things that I know that I've seen a couple of organizations do is they're floating an idea for a program, and so they market it as if it's already um, up and running, and then they see how many people sign up. So, yep. you know, so they've actually not created the program. They've not hired staff. They just want to gauge, the mar- you know, the market interest, Perspective clients: How many people are really interested in it? And and it is interesting because there are times that organizations will go, "Oh wow, there's not the demand for this we thought there was," or "Okay, um, we're not marketing it correctly." Whatever it is, uh, and, and you're right, it saves them from that that pain of 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 getting the money, creating, a, a, actually, you know, building out the staff and building out the program, and then having to go back to the funder and say, "Hey, sorry, this was this was a no go."
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, you know, people get real excited about a particular idea and you know, if they run all the way through it and then, you know, there's a big launch and then it's crickets, like, whoa. And then typically what I've seen is then it gets blamed on, well, we're just not telling people, you know, it, it must be the marketing. We're just not communicating this well, when actually, you know, someone came up with a solution before they really defined what the problem was that they're trying to solve for folks. Or they're solving a problem that's not Actually, that important to people. Right. It, it might be a nice to have, but it's not a not something that's really a burning need. Right.
0: Absolutely. Well, Carol, I want to save just a few moments for us to ask you the off the map question. And I understand that during some portion of your undergraduate years, you spent time studying in West Berlin. And for folks who do not remember the world before 1990 which is now a significant percentage of the United States' population. I'm sorry, Carol, but it it does mean that you and I are aging. But for those folks who don't remember the world before 1990, there used to be a wall between East and West Berlin. And East Berlin, of course, was controlled by the Soviets, and uh, West Berlin was often thought of as Free Germany. So, Carol, tell us a little bit about what you learned living in West Berlin.
1: Well, it was a, a, a really fascinating experience. And I mean, there literally was a wall around the city um, and it, and it uh, cut through, um, you know, before that, the, when the city was occupied after the World War II, the, the city was portioned into four sections of the allies, the Russians, I guess it was the French, the English and the, and the Americans. So the three parts that were the Americans, French and British, became West Berlin. So, um, you know, yeah, there was a, there was a no person zone where there are people up in in towers. It looks like a prison looking into East Berlin, uh, the experience of going over into East Berlin and, and, or I traveled between West Berlin and over to West Germany. And so that you had to take a train that went through East East Germany and it would get, you would, the train was stopped and the East German police, um, and I guess, I don't know whether it was their secret service or, or Stasi was their, um, their secret police will come through and check everyone's ID. I've never seen, I've never been so intimidated in my life as, um, you know, <laughs> either going into East Germany and handing over my ID. I really am this person. <laughs> so it, it was, it was intense. And, uh, We talked about that ghost town of of Philadelphia a a few years ago, but boy, um, East German cities under that period also, people were not out on the street, they were home, they were at their work, they, 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 you know, it also had that kind of ghostly feeling. It was, Mm. it was fascinating place to be.
0: Mm. And I just, I just have to reflect. Uh, Carol, I don't know your politics. I'm unabashedly progressive and liberal and I'm unabashedly progressive and liberal on the podcast because frankly I really don't want clients that are that have conservative or – client organizations that have really conservative views. Um, but so um, I do find it a little bit ironic that in 19 – I think it was 1987 or 1988 when Ronald Reagan was like, Gorbachev, tear down that wall. And let me say I've never voted Republican. But um, I find it ironic that the Republican Party, which 30 plus years ago was like tear down that wall, is now the same party that says build that wall. You yeah. have, you have got crazy. to be kidding me.
1: Yeah, there's all sorts of kind of we're in this hall of mirrors of just weird stuff going on and the, 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 you know, uh, what uh, collaborations, not the coercion, no, uh, collusion with the Russians now. it, Yeah. It's
0: craziness. It's crazy. Well, Carol, it has been so wonderful spending some time with you today. I am super grateful that you came on to share with our podcast listeners. Now, listeners, if you heard Carol and you think maybe your organization could use the help of Grace Social Sector Consulting, you can find her website at gracesocialsector.com. And of course, it is included right in the show notes for today's episode. There are many useful and free resources that you can get when you go to graysocialsector.com. So, first of all, make sure you check out the Mission Impact blog. Carol is doing a great job of blogging regularly. Frankly, better job than I've been doing over the last few months. So it's an active blog and you can get some great information there. And at that blog, Carol shares her knowledge on topics that all nonprofits can relate to. Things like how to build your strong board, how to create engaging, engaging meetings. So when you go to our show notes, we will also link to the blog on her website. Hey, Carol, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you so much. This has been a really fun conversation.
0: If you missed Carol's URL and couldn't write it down, although it's greatsocialsector.com, I literally just did that from memory. But if for some reason you can't do that, we've got you covered. Just visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com to find Carol's information in our show notes. I encourage everyone to take a long vacation every year because it is an important part of self-care. When this episode is released, my husband and I will have just started our three-week vacation in Australia. We've rented a camper van and we will explore Australia's western coast while also hopefully reliving some of my favorite moments from the movie Priscilla Queen of the Desert. And let me just say, if spending weeks with your spouse in a 100-foot room on wheels does not sound like a great vacation to you, that's okay. I just hope that as we're approaching the end of the year, you take some time for a meaningful break from your day-to-day responsibilities. Whether you're a board member, an executive director, a development director, or anyone working in the nonprofit sector, it is just critically important that you take care of yourself. And let me say, when I say taking care of yourself, I don't mean a long weekend. I mean a multi-week vacation. If you're like most of us, it takes a week to stop thinking about work. So if you take a two-week vacation, you really only got one week off from work. And if you take a three-week, you only get two weeks off from work. Now, if a multi-week vacation is not in the cards for you this year, I'd like for you to consider making that your 2020 New Year's resolution. Either way, I do also want to hear your New Year's resolutions. And believe it or not, we are going to share some of our listeners' resolutions in our annual New Year's episode. So if you would like your resolution to maybe be featured on the podcast, here's what I need you to do. Use an audio recording app on your phone and record your resolution in an MP3 or WAV file. Now, before you sit down to record that, I want you to also think about three things. First of all, make sure you're recording in a quiet place. It will be difficult for us to edit out the sounds of subways, traffic, crowded restaurants, barking dogs, screaming children, etc. So find a quiet place and record there. Second, please keep in mind that the resolutions that we're going to be airing and actually um, including in the show will be very low on self-promotion and high on honesty. So if it seems like it's just self-promotion for your organization or your consulting practice or whatever, we would be pretty unlikely um, to actually include that in the show. Having said that, make sure you at least include your first name and your city, and you can also include the name of your organization if you want. All that's cool, so please make sure you do that. Now, once you are happy with the recording, just share it with Isaac, our Special Projects Coordinator, at Isaac at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. He will send you a quick reply to let you know that your submission's been received, and we will follow up to let you know if it's being included in our New Year's episode. And last but not least, if you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor and hit the subscribe button on the podcast platform that you love to use. And by the way, if you really love the show, give us a rating, again, in the same platform. Thanks so much, listeners. That is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.